Our passage this morning is Philippians chapter 1, the end of verse 18 through verse 26. Let me just do a very quick review so that we can keep in context what has been discussed the last few weeks. Paul is in prison, he's in Rome, and yet he writes these words of encouragement, coming from a spirit of joy, with an attitude of acceptance, as well as confidence, even though he's in prison. And Paul is captured not so much by his imprisonment, but he's captivated by the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We heard about that last week. This is the driving force inside of him. Going back just a little bit to last week, he mentions this in verse 12, the furtherance of the gospel or the progress of the gospel. Again, in verse 15, Christ is being preached. Verse 16, again, Christ is being preached. And here in verse 18 as well, Christ is preached. And Paul says that he can rejoice because of this, because Christ is being preached. That's what brings joy to Paul. Now, if you're looking at the King James or the New King James, the very end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice, implies that it's a continuation of a previous thought. If you're looking at another translation, there will likely be a break right there. So that the last phrase of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice, is a preface for what comes next. So in verse 18, Paul is saying that he is rejoicing because Christ is being preached and he will continue to rejoice because of what he's about to say in verse 19. So let me read these verses for you beginning at the very end of verse 18 and reading through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor." Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we commit this time to you. We ask that you would speak not only to our minds, but also to our hearts, and have it overflow into our lives. May your truth be instilled and packed into us during this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 19, Paul will continue to rejoice because he knows 
he knows with certainty that he will be delivered through the prayers of God's people. This word delivered is the Greek word soterion. It actually means saved or or salvation. And we get the word soteriology from this, the doctrine of salvation. So Paul knows that he will be delivered, he will be saved from his present situation. And in this he rejoices, even though he's in prison. And here Paul echoes the words that Job expressed in Job 13, where he also said, He, God, shall be my salvation. Job said these to Zophar, one of his three friends. His friends were saying to him that his current sufferings were the result of some sin in his life. And Job knew that he was blameless before God, in the sense that he was not being punished for any specific disobedience. And Paul, too, here, knows that he is not being punished for any sin in his life. He's he's being persecuted for merely being a messenger of Jesus Christ in a wicked and sinful world. This word salvation that Job uses in the Old Testament is the word Yeshua. It means to deliver from distress. And the source of that salvation comes from outside the situation itself. And we translate that word to Jesus, our Savior. And so Paul rejoices because God's word is being proclaimed and because he knows for certain that his present situation will not last forever. He will ultimately be delivered. He will be saved from his current captivity. Either he will be released and continue to do God's work here on earth, furthering the gospel of Christ, or he will die and go and be with Christ. Either way, his deliverance is assured. Either way, regardless of the outcome, Paul will be victorious. And his joy is not contingent on whether he is physically released from prison or not. His joy is founded on the fact that he is spiritually alive and nothing can, nothing will ever change that fact. Paul also continues by saying that he's grateful for the prayers of the believers in Philippi. This was a church that was deeply loved by Paul. And knowing that they were praying for him was a a great blessing, a source of encouragement. Just a few years earlier, Paul had written to the church in Corinth describing the sufferings that he and Timothy were going through. And he says that their hope is in God. And Paul is confident that God will deliver them. And then he mentions that the church in Corinth helped them by praying for them. And he acknowledges the blessing of those prayers. And so he's doing the same thing here. And he adds that the spirit of Jesus Christ is the power behind those prayers. The power is not in the prayer itself. It's in the object of those prayers, the person the prayers are directed to. The spirit of the living Christ is the source of that power. Verse 20, Paul continues by talking about his earnest expectation and hope. This isn't just expectation. This is earnest expectation. It's not just anticipation. It's anticipation with eagerness. In the Greek, this literally means to stretch out the neck and bend the head forward. 
Now, before you think that's just some silly metaphor, let me give you an example, and I think you will all relate. Think of a time when you were in a crowd or a parade or at a graduation or some kind of ceremony, and you're waiting for a son or a daughter or a sibling to walk across the stage, or maybe it's a sporting event or a special celebration or or a concert, and some world-famous person is going to make their appearance, and you're sitting in a crowd, standing in a crowd, waiting with eager anticipation for that moment when this person appears. What do you do? Right? You stretch out your neck. You bend your head forward, eagerly anticipating the moment when that person comes into view. You aren't just thinking that it will happen. You know for certain that it could happen at any moment. And you want to capture every second of that moment and see this person and hear what they say or or watch what they do for as long as possible. And this is what Paul is saying here. According to his eager anticipation and hope so that he will not be ashamed in anything. Our word today, ashamed, has the context of of guilt or dishonor or disgrace. The biblical, biblical idea of shame expressed here has to do with disappointment or being disillusioned. In other words, hoping for something, eagerly expecting something that may or may not happen, which would then cause you to be disappointed. But that wasn't the case for Paul. His hope was not in something that may or may not happen. He was absolutely convinced of the truth and the power of the gospel. He knew firsthand who Jesus was. He had met him previously on the road to Damascus, and his encounter with Jesus had changed his entire life. He went from radically killing Christians to being willing to die for the very cause he once tried to destroy. And so Paul explains this idea in Romans 1, 16, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was so convinced of the truth and the power of the gospel that it didn't matter where he was or who he was with or what the culture dictated to be right, what was politically correct, Paul was convinced that the gospel should be applied to every situation. He had preached the gospel to the Jews. And the Jewish leaders had their traditions and their teachings, and Jesus didn't fit into their system. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the Greeks in Corinth, and he says that to the Jews, Jesus was a stumbling block. And then he adds that Jesus is foolishness to the Gentiles, of which the Greeks in Corinth were a part. The Greeks were founding their worth not on religious tradition, like the Jews, but on their own wisdom, which was a worldly wisdom. This was based on the traditions of Homer and Plato and Aristotle, men who valued wisdom above everything else. And Paul calls their wisdom foolishness, because it's the wisdom from the world, 
And so Paul has commented on how the Jews, as well as how the Greeks, perceive the gospel. This gospel of which Paul is not ashamed. And so this verse, Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek, to the Greek. This verse is addressed to the church in Rome. The Romans built their empire on power. Power that was ruthless and evil and had conquered the civilized world. And now Paul is in Rome, in prison, and he's a victim of this very power that is acted out by Rome. And he is bold enough to make this claim to the Romans themselves, even as he is imprisoned by them. And so Paul continues by saying that he hopes that he will be ashamed in nothing, but will have all boldness. According to my earnest expectation, verse 20, that, and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. We're familiar with what it means to be bold, to proclaim Christ, to do what's right in an evil world, even when it's viewed as wrong, to stand up for what the scriptures teach, to live righteously in an unrighteous world. And this is what this word means exactly, except it it adds more of a sense of, of confidence and conviction, being fully convinced that what you're saying is the absolute truth, not thinking it's true or being almost certain that it's true, but having absolute conviction without any wavering in your thinking, no doubting, being so convinced that you're willing to stick your neck out and bend your head forward, this earnest expectation, and speak the truth even when you know that you'll be rejected or persecuted or in Paul's case, possibly killed because of it. And this is what characterizes Paul's life. This wasn't a sense of shame as we know it today. It was a a firm conviction. And because of this conviction, Paul had the boldness to preach Christ to the Jews, the Greeks, and now the Roman guards. The gospel was so real to Paul that it gave him this firm boldness to proclaim Christ to anyone, anywhere, at any time, and at any cost. And that's why he can continue this verse saying, even now, even now though he's in prison in Rome, and as always, as he has always been faithful in doing, ever since that divine encounter with Jesus himself, Paul wants Christ to be magnified in his body. And it doesn't matter to him how that is accomplished. How it's done is not important to Paul. As long as the name of Christ is magnified, that will be Paul's highest desire, his greatest reward. Some translations use the word exalted. How can the name of Christ be exalted? How can the name of Christ be magnified in your life? When you're far away from something, it looks small. When you're up close to it, it becomes big. I've never been to the Grand Canyon. I've seen pictures of it, 
They're very nice pictures in a, in a book, on a calendar, but they're pictures. That's all I've seen. But when I talk to people who have been to the Grand Canyon or have actually stood in the Grand Canyon, they have a completely different perspective. They've been enveloped by its magnitude. If we live far from Christ, he will not be magnified in our lives. It's impossible. The only way for Christ to be magnified through us is if we stay close to Christ. Walk alongside of him so that his life impacts us to the extent that he looms so large in our lives that he overflows into the lives of others. Paul wants his life to magnify Christ, to make Christ large so that others can see Christ living in him. Paul continues to write in a very personal way. He gets down to the very issue of life itself, the value of our lives, and if they have any value at all. And if they do, how is that value evaluated? What is the criteria for living a life of value or worth? What determines the significance of your life, the impact that your life has or the legacy that you will leave? Paul says his life, he lives for Christ. Many years ago, Denise and I had the privilege of attending an international missions conference. We heard a missionary speak on the value of this life here on earth. She was a single missionary to the people in Papua New Guinea. And her comment was that life is not valued by what we live for, but life is valued by not having a cause large enough worth dying for. And that is exactly what Paul had. This cause was Christ himself. Paul was so convinced of the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he wanted his life to be all about Christ. And if that could be best demonstrated through Paul living here on earth, Paul was fine with that. Paul was equally willing to die, being fully convinced that Christ would be magnified in his body through death as well as through life. Paul explains very plainly then in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These are very familiar words. They're powerful words. They're words that describe Paul's innermost feelings when it comes to his purpose here on earth. But what do they mean? What does it actually mean to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Can you honestly say those words about yourself? Is Paul's statement true for you, for me? Paul says that for him to be alive, to breathe, to exist in the flesh is Christ. When Paul wakes up in the morning, his life is for Christ. When he goes to bed at night, his life is for Christ. 
And everything that happens in between those two times is for the sake of Christ. Our English Bible doesn't completely grasp the entire thought here in the way that Paul writes it. In the Greek, the word is is not there. So a better way of saying this is to say, to live, Christ. To die, gain. We add the prepositions so that it makes more sense to us. We live our life for Christ or about Christ or to point to Christ or for the sake of Christ. Paul says to live Christ. The words of the Phillips translation actually conveys this idea more accurately, I think. Let me read uh, verses 20 and 21 from the Phillips translation. It all accords with my own earnest wishes and hopes, which are that I should never in any way be ashamed, but that now, as always, I should honor Christ with the utmost boldness by the way I live, whether that means I am to face death or to go on living. For living to me means simply Christ. And if I die, I should merely gain more of him. For living to me means simply Christ. And if I die, I should merely gain more of him. Paul can say this because he already identifies with the death of Christ on the cross. He writes to the, to, to the believers in Galatia, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul's life is not his own. It is the life of Christ living in Paul. He continues, And the life which I now live in the flesh, this human body here on earth, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul already considers himself dead. The life that he is now living is not really his own. It's the life of Christ living in him, And through him. Christ has already sacrificed his life for Paul. Paul is now ready to do the same in return. For Paul, Christ is the only reason for life itself. There is no other reason to live. Humanly speaking, Paul had a lot to live for. He records his earthly credentials in chapter 3. This was the the passage that was read earlier. And I wanted that to be read so that we could see the difference from what Paul had considered earlier to be his gain to what he now counted as loss. These were his credentials, or some of his credentials, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee who was blameless in righteousness according to the law. As for zeal, he was motivated to the point of persecuting those who followed Jesus. All of these, plus others, from a a human viewpoint, could be considered great gain. In fact, Paul says himself that they, they have been for his gain. You may have a lot of earthly gain in your life as well. Physical abilities, academic, intellectual abilities. You may have the ability to earn a lot of money. 
or have a lot of education. You may have a title or a role or a position at work that earns you respect and admiration of others. These are all things that the world considers gain. And Paul had every reason to count these things as gain, yet he counts them as loss. He moves them from the list of gains to the list of losses. And only for one reason, for the sake of Christ. All these things Paul considers to be loss so that he might gain Christ. Paul writes in Acts 20, 24, again about how he views his own life in regards to his ultimate joy attained in fulfilling the mission of making Christ known. If you were in Pastor Armstrong's Sunday school class this morning, you can just zone out for the next five minutes because you've heard it already. He he already preached it. I, I really think he hacked my computer somehow this past week. But let me read some of the newer translations and how they record the words of Paul of Acts 20, 24. But I do not consider my life as something of value or dear to me. I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. But nothing Not even my life is more important than my completing my mission. I consider my own life of no importance to me whatsoever, as long as I can finish the course ahead of me. And lastly, but I don't care what happens to me as long as I finish the work the Lord Jesus gave me to do. And so Paul writes at the end of Philippians chapter 3, that our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. This world in which we live is a foreign land. The world's perspective on success and gain is directly opposed to God's perspective. Fortunately for Paul, by God's grace, he had learned God's perspective. For Paul, Christ is not just the the focal point of his life. Christ is the entire picture. Christ isn't just the pinnacle, the highest aim. He is every aim. Christ isn't just the final destination. He's the entire journey. He's every step of the way. Christ isn't just the center of Paul's life. He's the center and the circumference and everything in between as well as everything beyond. Christ isn't just first place in Paul's life. He's the only place. There is only one place. And for that place to be filled with something of value in Paul's life, it must be filled with Christ. Paul's only reason to live in the flesh here on earth is to further the gospel of Christ. He lived for Christ. He traveled for Christ. He preached for Christ. He was persecuted, imprisoned for Christ. He was beaten for Christ. Stoned for Christ, shipwrecked for Christ, in peril from robbers for Christ. He endured sleepless nights for Christ. He experienced hunger and thirst for Christ. He was cold and naked for the sake of Christ. Everything Paul did was for the sake of Christ. 
What about you? What about me? What are we doing for the sake of Christ? How are we living our lives for the sake of Christ? You may ask, what am I supposed to do for Christ? Well, fortunately for us, Paul answers that question. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul writes these words, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, Paul here in this context is discussing food sacrificed to idols. But these words are not limited to just this, I think. Paul is saying here that even in the most mundane, routine, quote, unspiritual things in life, God is to be honored in our attitudes, our actions, our words, and our thoughts. And Paul says, live in such a way that you are in full communion with God in everything that you do, to please him in all things while you're here on earth. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are his children, and our life in him begins at the moment we trust him. We're not supposed to wait until we get to heaven to start bringing glory and praise to God. It's our responsibility, it's our duty, it's our highest privilege right now in everything that we do. When you eat, when you go shopping, when you go to class, when you study, when you meet with friends, when you drive, yes, when you drive, when you work, when you play, when you travel, when you read, when you watch, it's all for the glory of God. This is what Paul is conveying here in this life that he lives each day. As long as God gives him breath, he would breathe and he would live his life for Christ. In verses 22 to 23, we move from living to dying. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Paul changes direction from living for Christ to dying for Christ. And it, it seems here almost as if Paul can make the choice. He can choose. Well, the choice is not his to make. But he's presenting these options and he's desiring both of them, seeing the benefits of both. He's willing to live and yet he desires to die. He's perplexed by the opposite attraction of benefiting the church on one hand and his own personal advantage on the other. To remain here in this world and labor for the cause of Christ is more necessary for the Philippian church. And yet to die and to bid this world farewell and go and live with with Christ forever, that is very much more desirable. If God should choose to remove breath from Paul's body and he is killed for the cause of Christ, that would be better than continuing to live here. In fact, that would be very much better. Death in itself, by itself, is of no benefit. But for the Christian, death has great benefit. Unfortunately, for those who do not know Jesus, death holds no benefit at all. 
As Christians, we may experience hardship here on earth, as Paul did on many occasions. But we always have the certain hope, the promise of spending eternity with Christ. The unbeliever, on the other hand, may have some happiness here on earth, possessing money, things, pleasure. But if they do not have Christ, death for them will be eternal suffering and separation from God. The reality is that Paul knew this, and this is what compelled him to preach the good news of Christ to everyone, everywhere. This is what he lived for, to direct people to the hope of eternal life once they died. And this is also what Paul was willing to die for. I've talked with people who are facing imminent death, and they are very afraid of dying. The very thought of death terrifies them. Perhaps you're young and you're excited about all that life has yet to offer you, and you you should be excited. God has a specific plan for each of us, and he is able to use each of his children in ways far beyond anything that we could imagine. But as I get older, and I see how the world has rejected God and has changed right into wrong to the point where Truth is no longer pursued or even tolerated. In fact, our society says that there is no truth. It's all relative. As I observe these things, I find it very easy to yearn for life with Christ. The world says, truth is dead. Jesus says, I am the truth. And he's not dead. Some people may view life as being a difficult struggle that is not worth living, and death, although unknown and dark, may seem to provide a way of escape, a way out. But either way, they are fearful of what lies ahead. Life has no pleasure, has no joy for them, and so they consider death. The Apostle John writes that men loved darkness and not light because their deeds were evil. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says that in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves. They will be haters of good, ungrateful, unholy, unloving. So this world is not a pleasant place to live. I think we all know that. And some decide that they would rather not live. And yet the fear of death convinces them to keep on living. It's a vicious cycle which offers no rest, no peace. And they go from the misery of living to the fear of dying and back and forth. Both options bring dread and terror. But for Paul, both life and death, they offer immense blessings. It gives him so much joy and fulfillment that he's caught between which he would prefer. On the one hand, living for Christ and seeing people drawn to him brings abundant joy to Paul. And yet to be with Christ forever... That would be a far greater joy. There's at least three benefits of death for the Christian. One is to be free from this world of sin. One commentator from many years ago, Charles Simeon, writes, To get rid of sin and sorrow and temptation and suffering of every kind, to have all the faculties of this soul perfected, all its capacities enlarged, All its wishes accomplished. To be free from this world of sin. What a great benefit 
another benefit, to be like Christ. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And we will worship him and we will praise him and love him with perfect bodies and pure hearts. Another benefit is that we will be with Christ forever. Charles Simeon continues, To behold all the glory of God and and Savior, to join with all the hosts of heaven in songs of joy and triumph, to enter upon a state of unalienable, everlasting felicity, well might he say, this is far better. For even Paul's exalted happiness while on earth must fall infinitely short of such a state as that. We wonder not, therefore, that he wished to exchange his present trials for this unutterable bliss. Death for the believer, for the unbeliever, is a, is a horrible thing. Separation from this, this world as well as separation from God. But for the believer, death is a temporary separation from fellow believers. It's a permanent separation from this natural, sinful body to a new body and eternity with Christ. For Paul, the future was not between Christ and not Christ. It was Christ and more of Christ. A blessed journey with Christ in this world, living for Christ and more of Christ in the next world, being with Christ. Paul is observing the benefits of both options, and he feels hard-pressed. It's like he's going through a narrow passageway, and he's being pushed from both sides, and he, he can't decide which to choose, desiring both of them, and yet unsure which path to take. In verses 24 and 25, Paul moves from discussing the benefits for himself in death to the benefits for others if he would remain alive. And he does this in a very warm and personal way. He says here he is now fully convinced that the time for him to receive his heavenly reward has not yet arrived. He confidently expects that he will be released from prison and continue his work here on earth for the sake of Christ. I made reference earlier to verse 12 from last week, where Paul writes, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Paul reiterates his desire to further the gospel, which will bring joy not only to him, but to the Philippian church as well. And in verse 26, in this verse again, we see Paul continues to rejoice. And he rejoices for another reason. It's a joy that the church in Philippi would have in seeing him again and rejoicing rejoicing with him for all that Christ had been doing through him in his situation. A couple of weeks ago in the first section of this chapter, we saw the close connection that Paul had with with this church. And Pastor Armstrong stressed the partnership of the church with Paul. They were extensions of of one another. They were part of the same body of believers, united in spirit, intent on on one purpose. And Pastor Harris emphasized this week last week, uh, this point last week as well. And since they were all one body, they would be concerned about the welfare of each member. And so Paul writes that his desire was to return to the church in, in Philippi, and they would all rejoice of being together again. At the end of Philippians chapter 2, we have record of 
Paul intending to send Timothy as well as Epaphroditus to the church. These were men who were known to the Philippians, and so they had concern for these men. In fact, Epaphroditus was the one who brought Paul's letter from Rome to the Philippians. But while he was in Rome, he had been very sick, and he had almost died. And the Philippian church had heard about that, and they became very worried about him. And this caused Paul to be worried about them. And now that Epaphroditus was better, Paul wanted him to return to to Philippi so that they could rejoice that he was better and that they were together and that they could see him again. And Paul wanted to come and see them as well. So here in this verse, we see the partnership as well as the love between the church and those who were sent out from the church. And when those who are sent out have trouble or sickness, it affects the church itself. Now, I want you to take your worship guides, and I want you to look in the back, and you'll see a list of missionaries there, or as it says, our partners with Christ, our partners in Christ. There's also missionaries that are, list, that are not listed that our church is connected to probably because of family connections or something else, but we don't officially support them. And as you look through this list, if you know these missionaries, if you've been here a while, you'll notice that most of these missionaries, many of them, have had or currently have some sort of health concern or perhaps a deep struggle that they're engaged with while they're on the field, sharing the gospel with the people around them. And so our church here in Limerick becomes aware of these concerns and we pray for them and we communicate our love and our care for them through emails and phone calls and and apps. And they do the same for us when they hear of concerns that we as a church are experiencing here. And when the time comes for us to see them again, usually it's when they come home on furlough. Occasionally we send a, a team down to where they are When we come together again, we rejoice not only to see them, but also to hear of how God has worked in their lives and in their ministry. It could be through healing of physical needs, as in the case of Epaphroditus, or the way that God has provided financially or perhaps spiritually in the lives of the people they serve. And this is what Paul is saying here. When we see each other again, there will be much cause for rejoicing with Christ Jesus for the reunion and all that God has done in and through Paul's imprisonment and the furthering of the gospel. Paul expresses his desire that he wants to come and see them again when he is released from prison. That was Paul's intention. We don't know for sure if that ever actually happened. But we see here that their combined joy was to be centered on Christ and what Christ had done has done by the, the gospel being preached during the time that Paul was in prison, regardless of who was proclaiming it. Again, Paul's greatest desire is evident. Everything he did, he did for the sake of Christ. His life or his death would all be for Christ. And so the challenge is left with us. Are we living our lives for the cause of Christ? If, if you are living your life for anything other than Christ, I can assure you your life will be ultimately wasted. 
It will be of no value. It will essentially be meaningless. So I invite you to make that decision. If you do not know Christ, and yet you want a life that is full, not only in this life, but especially in the next life, I invite you to trust Christ alone with all that you are. Maybe you're a believer in Jesus and you are living a life that is not for the sake of Christ. Your life also will not be as full as Christ intended it to be. You'll be living a life without all the blessings that God wants you to enjoy. And so I invite you to live a life that is for the sake of Christ and all that you do. A life lived so close to God that he will be magnified through you because you will be close to him and he will overflow through you into the lives of others. Live in such a way so that you can echo Paul's sentiment, while I live, only Christ. And when I die, that will be very much better. Let's pray together. Father, that is our desire to live a life that is for the sake of Christ. And yet in this world, it's very difficult to do that. With the culture around us, with, with what we are told we can do and not do, what we can say and not say, please give us the boldness. Help us not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.